Welcome to the City Reach Baptist podcast. If you would like more information about the life of our church, please go to our website at cityreach.com.au or like us on Facebook. We hope you enjoy this message. I want you to see if you can guess what this paragraph is all about that is going to appear on the screen. Let me read it to you. A newspaper is better than a magazine. A seashore is a better place than a street. At first, it's better to run than to walk. You have to try several times. It takes skill, but it's easy to learn. Once successful, complications are minimal. Even young children can enjoy it. Birds seldom get too close. Rain, however, soaks in very fast. Too many people doing the same thing can cause problems. You need lots of room. If there are no complications, it can be very peaceful. A rock will serve as an anchor, but if it breaks loose, you will not get a second chance. Did you get it? Do you know what those sentences are about? You probably didn't because I didn't give you the subject of those sentences or those paragraphs. And without the subject, it's impossible to make sense of what the paragraph is actually about. You know, for many people, their lives don't make sense. What am I here? Why do I exist? What is life about? For many people, they go to work, they go to sleep, they come home. The next day, they go to work, they go to sleep, and it just repeats over and over again, and they ask the question, what is life about? Is there any purpose or meaning in life? Can I suggest to you, if that's you, then maybe you have yet to discover what the subject of your life is. Can I suggest to you that maybe if you have that deep sense, then maybe you need to reassess your reason for living. Well, this morning, we are going to begin the study of the Gospel of John, and we're probably going to study this book for the rest of the year. You know, there are four biographies of Jesus' life in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And John was the best friend of Jesus, and he, writ, he wrote his biography of Jesus' life with the express purpose of helping people understand what is the meaning of life. Uh, John said this at the end of his gospel in John 20, verse 30, I have written these things so that you might come to know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The whole reason why John wrote this gospel was that, so that people could understand the meaning of life. But this morning, we are just going to look at the first 18 verses, which is known as the prologue to John's gospel, the introduction to John's gospel. And what we're going to look at is we're going to look at three questions this morning. Number one, what is the reason for existence? Number two, why is this the reason for existence? And number three, how can we know that this is the reason for existence? So what is the reason for existence according to John? Why is it the reason for existence according to John? And how can we actually know that is the reason for existence? So let's let's first look at my first question this morning. What is the reason for existence? Well, John, you'll notice if you look down in your Bibles, he opens his gospel in a very interesting way. Look down in verse 1. He says, in the beginning. Now, these words are just like a hyperlink that you press on the computer that transports us back to the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, and the very opening words of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But this is not the astounding thing that John actually says. You notice that John says, 
in the beginning was the Word. Now, rather than John, like Genesis, say that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, John goes back further, and he says, right at the very beginning, before there was anything else, there was the Word. Now, John knew exactly what he was doing by employing this term word, or in Greek, it's the term logos. You see, John was stepping in to the philosophical debates that had been raging for centuries. You see, Greek philosophers had been discussing for centuries what you, as an average person, have probably wondered. Is there any meaning to life? What is life all about? And the Greeks had a particular word that they used to describe this. It was the word logos. They thought that there must be this logos, this philosophical concept, this principle of existence. And the Greeks reasoned that if we could find out the logos, the principle of existence, the reason why things exist, then we can line up our lives with that, with the reason for existence, with the purpose of existence, and therefore, we can live an authentic life. Let me just give you an illustration that will hopefully illustrate what I mean. Just say you come into someone's house, and when you come in, you discover that they have this brand new coffee machine, like a Nescafe one, the sort that George Clooney drinks. And when you come into their house, you're excited because you're hoping that you are going to get a cup of coffee, this beautiful coffee. But when you walk into their house, rather than their coffee machine being on the table, it's actually being used as a doorstop to keep the door open. Now, you would probably conclude two things. Firstly, that the coffee machine is not realizing its potential because it's being used as a doorstop and not as a coffee machine. And secondly, you would realize, maybe make the assumption that the reason that it's not realizing its potential is because the owner did, does not know the logos of the coffee machine. In other words, the owner does not understand the principle of its existence, that a coffee machine exists to do what? To make coffee. It doesn't exist to be a doorstop. You know, um, a couple of years ago, or many years ago now, I, went to, I was in Africa, and we went into this restaurant, and we sat down, and um, the people handed us this menu. And so we started looking at the menu, and then they turned to us and they said, oh, don't worry about the menu, we no longer cook anything on the menu. And so we just folded it up and we just put it away. You see, once again, they didn't understand the logos of the menu. The purpose of a menu is to show you what the restaurant cooks so that you can then make a choice as to what you're going to eat. And you see, this is what the great philosophers of the time were debating. What is the logos? What is the principle of existence? What, why do we exist? And Because they thought if we can just find out that logos, the principle of existence, then we can line our lives up with that and live a truly authentic life. Otherwise, we might end up being like a coffee machine that's being used as a doorstop. Now, by the time, this is fascinating, by the time Jesus came along and by the time John was writing, the Greek schools of philosophy had fractured and fragmented and because there was no real consensus between the different schools of Greek philosophy, they'd come to this point where they said, you know, maybe, maybe it's futile. Maybe there is no logos. Maybe there is no real meaning to the universe, at least a meaning that we can discover for ourselves. 
And so in order to deal with this bleak reality that there is no meaning in the universe, there was these two schools of thought. First, the Epicureans. The Epicureans believed that since there were no real answers, all you needed to do was pursue pleasure. The meaning of life is to suck every bit of pleasure out of every single moment. And so they were like the party school of Greek philosophy. On the other hand, there were the Stoics. Now, the Stoics were a bit more noble than the Epicureans. And the Stoics believed, even though you, there is no logos, we need to be Stoic and we need to live as though there is Logos, live as though there is right and wrong. We need to be stoic in the face of this bleak reality and we need to you know, make the world a better place. You know, nothing has changed, has it? When you think about the time in which we live, many people now you know, just shrug their shoulders and say, maybe there is no meaning in the universe. Maybe this is all just a cosmic mistake. Maybe we were lucky at the cosmic roulette table. And that's why we have something instead of nothing. And so many people nowadays either adopt one of these two approaches to life. Some people are Epicureans. They think, well, there are no answers, so we just need to distract ourselves with the pursuit of pleasure. And there is FOMO, the fear of missing out. You know, what is life about? It's about sucking pleasure out of every single moment. Other people, they are say, no, 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 we need to be stoic. Even though there are no ultimate answers, even though, you know, in the end, the sun is going to go out, all of the stars in the night sky are going to go out and we'll all be forgotten. Even though there is no ultimate meaning, we need to live as though there is. We need to make this world a better place. We need to live as though there is right and wrong. So not much has changed, has it? But this is where John's words just ring out so amazingly and offer hope. In the beginning was the Logos. You see, John says that before there was anything, there was a reason for existence. You know, we don't live in a world, a cold world, where there are no answers, John says. There is an answer. There is a Logos. But John says something that would even be more mind-blowing for the people of his day. He says, in the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with Theos, God, and the Logos was Theos. He was with God in the beginning. You see, John is saying something that would have blown every circuit in the brains of the Greeks of the time. There is a Logos but this Logos is now not some abstract philosophical concept. This Logos is a person. He was with God in the beginning. And not only was he with God in the beginning, but in some mysterious way, he was also God. Wow. You see, Christianity is not primarily about embracing a philosophical concept or adopting a new way of living. It's actually about coming to know a person. And John says that the reason for existence, the reason why everything exists, is it exists for a person. It exists for Jesus. 
And if you're a person, therefore, the reason why you exist is you exist for Jesus. You exist to know him and worship him and serve him. And unless that is your purpose for existence, you might be just like a coffee machine that's being used as a doorstop. So let me ask you this morning, what is your reason for existence? You know, everyone has one. Everyone has a reason to get up in the morning. You know, you mightn't even be conscious of what your reason is, but you will have a reason to get up in the morning. You know, some people, they live to eat. Other people live to look good. Other people live to run. You know, this past week, my family and I, we were at Handorf up there because we had some family and friends who were visiting. And as we were sitting there having our lunch in the park, there was this girl and she was like taking all these photos of herself, posing. And I said to Emma, what is she doing? And she said, oh, she's an Instagrammer. And she's posing and, and you know, and, and, and many people nowadays, their whole purpose is to build up their social media profile and that's what they live for. Everyone lives for something. So what is your reason for existence? You know, as Christ followers, our reason for existence is to know Jesus and love Jesus and serve Jesus. This past week, I was just talking to my friend um, Graham Denner, and we're talking about how nowadays what's happening is many people, many Christians are being sucked into an Epicurean lifestyle. Is even though, even, even, though, even though we could answer a doctrinal quiz correct, who is Jesus? Jesus is Lord. Yet we get sucked into living like Epicureans, living like there is no future, living for the now, living for this moment. Graham is a doctor, and Graham said the interesting thing for him over the last 20 years is that as he has you know, looked after many patients, many patients now are not upset that their lives are coming to an end. Mostly they're upset that their health is deteriorating and to such a point that they can't enjoy life. They can't go out and suck the marrow out of their life and go on all of these world cruises and have all the experiences that they want to do. You see, what is the reason for existence? Jesus is the Logos. He is the reason for everything. Everything exists for him. Now, I know this is a big claim that Jesus is the Logos, so let's look at our second question. Why is he the reason for living? Why is he the reason for living? Well, John goes on to say this in verse 3. Look in your Bibles. He says, all things were made through him. Now, not only did John know that by using the term Logos, that he was entering into the philosophical debates of his time, but he also knew that behind this term was a very Jewish idea. You see, right back at the very beginning in Genesis, it says that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and how did God create the heavens and the earth? It was through his word. God spoke, let there be light, and there was light. And all the way throughout the Old Testament, you will see when God wants to achieve something or do something, he does it through his word. And so what John is saying is that Jesus is the word from the Father through whom the Father created all things. And John makes us, it makes it certain that we get this. He says, all things were created through him, and nothing was made that has been made. So this is all-encompassing. Jesus created everything. Everything was made through Jesus. 
Now, why is this so significant? We'll look down in your Bibles in verse 4. John then goes on to say, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. These two words, life and light, will actually be key words in the Gospel of John. And this word light is actually a metaphor. You see, what John is saying is that when you come to know Jesus, you, come, you become enlightened. You come to know what life is about and how you should live life. You see, let's go back to that coffee machine illustration for a second. Let's just say you did walk into someone's house and they were using that brand new coffee machine as a doorstop. And you turned to them and you said, why are you using that brand new coffee machine as a doorstop? Haven't you seen the ads with June, uh, George Clooney? And they turned back to you and they said, no, you are mistaken. That is not a coffee machine, that is a doorstop. And then you got into this big argument. You say, no, it's a coffee machine. And them say, no, it's a doorstop. And you get into this big, big argument. And finally, the person turns to you and they, said, and they say to you, well, let's just agree to disagree. I have my truth and you have your truth. To me, I identify this as a doorstep. So I'm going to use it as a doorstep. You can use it however you would like. Now, how would you be able to resolve the argument? Well, the only way that you would be able to resolve the argument if the person was reasonable is by getting the inventor of the coffee machine to come and tell you the truth as to why they made the coffee machine and how, therefore, you should use the coffee machine. And you see, this is why Jesus is the reason for our existence, is because he created all things, he alone is qualified to tell us the truth about the nature of reality. Now, I don't know this happened to you when you were back in high school, but when I was in high school, uh, we would study poetry and literature. It was a real pain in the neck. And we would often be asked to write essays about giving an interpretation for the piece of poetry that we were reading in class. And I don't know whether this is the case at Cedar... Um, Pete, but this was the case in my high school. The more creative your interpretation, uh, the greater the mark that you would get. And so me and my friends, as you can imagine, we came up with some pretty creative interpretations for the po poems that we were reading. And they were quite vastly different interpretations. But how would you know which interpretation is correct? How would you know what the author was trying to communicate through that poem? How would you know? You need to ask the author. And this is John's point. You see, since Jesus is the author of life, he alone is uniquely qualified to tell us the truth about life. Now, I know for many people today, this idea of absolute truth is a hard pill to swallow, and it seems very narrow-minded. But can I suggest to you that the reason that that is, is because we've been raised in an environment where for the last 200 years, we've been told through our institutions of higher learning and through the arts that truth is subjective, that truth is relative. And if you tell someone that what they believe is a whole heap of rubbish, you might risk hurting their feelings. But can I suggest to you that if you are grappling with this idea of absolute truth today, can I suggest to you that you already know in your heart that truth is not relative. And the reason that you know that is because no one in this room lives actually their daily life as if truth is relative. 
When you build a house, you don't build it according to relative truth. You build it according to the truth, the plans that you have. When you go to the doctor, you don't want relative truth. You want the doctor to give you a truthful diagnosis. You might get a second opinion, but you're seeking after the truth of your condition. You know, it's interesting a couple of weeks ago that when Israel Folau posted that quote on his Instagram account, the media went absolutely crazy. And people were morally outraged. I remember waking up in the morning, we were in the Barossa, Tegan and I, for our 25th wedding anniversary. Thank you very much. Yeah. Well done, Tegan. <laughs> and uh, I remember waking up and just watching the morning show. And uh, this woman on the morning show, the moral disgust in her face towards Israel Folau. You could, it was palpable on the TV. But why? Why be morally outraged? I mean, if this is what Israel Folau believes in his heart, and this is, if truth is relative, then why is there anything wrong with what he said? I mean, why be morally outraged? You see, the real reality is that everyone knows that there is truth, that there is right and wrong, but the question is, who gets to determine what is right and what is wrong? And the answer for the last 200 years in Western philosophy has been the individual gets to determine for themselves, based upon their feelings, what is right and what is wrong, what is true and what is false. And so now what we have is, if I am a boy and I feel that I'm a girl, then maybe the truth is I'm a girl. But the only problem with this line of thinking is reality. You see, eventually reality catches up with everyone. You see, the reason why you want to submit to God and take his definition of truth is because there is one. There is a God. Now, I know that that's a reality that many of us don't like to face, but it's always been that way. It was, back, it was that way back in the first century. Notice down in verse 9, John says, the true light, he's referring to Jesus, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He made the world, and yet the world rejected him. In fact, he goes on to say, he came to his own, meaning the people of Israel who were expecting a Messiah, and his own people did not receive him. You see, if we're really honest, let's be honest here this morning. If we're really, really honest, the reason why we don't like absolute truth and the reason why we'd rather live in a fantasy world where we get to create truth for ourselves is because we don't like people telling us what to do. We don't like coming under authority. And so we would much rather live in a world of our own creation, in a fantasy world, where we get to define for ourselves gender and sexuality and morality. But the only problem with that way of thinking, as I said, is that eventually reality catches up with everyone. The reason you want to submit to a God is because there is one. And you either submit now to him or you will submit later to him. 
Now, don't get me wrong. Even though the default of our hearts is darkness and we, we reject God and we want to live our own way, there is hope. For John says in verse 5, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. You know, maybe the light is starting to shine in your heart. The reason that people become Christians is because Jesus starts to shine the light of who he is into the hearts of people. So we have looked this morning at what is the reason for existence, and we've said it's Jesus. We've looked at why he is the reason for existence, because he created all things. But finally, how can I know for certain that this is the reason for existence? I mean, this is a pretty bold claim that Christianity makes. Jesus is the reason for existence, but how can we know that Jesus is the reason for existence? Well, on the one hand, if you're really sincere here today, I would say that at least Jesus is worthy of your consideration given the impact that he's had on human history. You know, if you've got a group of educated people together and you were to ask them this question, who are the six most influential people in the world? At least three of those people would be Muhammad, Buddha, and Jesus. So just as you look at the history of the world, Jesus has been this influential figure and any thinking person therefore should examine his claims. But there is something about Jesus that makes him stand out over and above all those others, over Buddha and over Muhammad. Look down in verse 14. Remember in verse 1, he said, In the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. And then in verse 14, he makes this astounding statement. He says, And the Logos, the Word, became flesh and dwelt among us. You see, how can you know for certain that Jesus is the reason for living? Well, whereas Buddha and Muhammad taught about God, Jesus claimed to be God in the flesh. The Word became flesh. But it's even more than that. Whereas Muhammad and Buddha and the religions that they founded are based on their teaching, Christianity isn't based primarily on Jesus' teaching. It's based on what he did in history. It's based on an event that the Word entered into history. The Word became flesh. And the importance of this cannot be understated. I mean, it's very hard. Come with me for a second, because this is so important for Christians. This will strengthen your faith. It's very hard to ascertain the truthfulness of someone's private, subjective experience. So Muhammad... And uh, Buddha, they had private experiences, private revelatory experiences. And it's very hard to ascertain whether that was true or whether they were just making it up because it's their private experience. But do you realize, guys, that Christianity is different to that? It's not based on the private experience of Jesus. It's based upon him coming into history and so Christianity opens itself up to investigation and testing. I mean, is there a Jesus who existed? Did he really do the miracles that he claimed? Did he really die and rise from the dead? Now, some of you might be thinking, well, I don't believe anything that I don't see because seeing is believing. And I would say to you, then you must have a pretty limited experience then or a pretty limited knowledge because, you know, none of us can experience all things. I mean, who here believes that Beijing exists? Do you believe that Beijing exists? Who here has been to Beijing? All right, some of us. I've never been to Beijing. 
But I still believe it exists. And why do I believe it exists? Because I believe the testimony of those people who've been there. And this is especially true when it comes to historical events. You know, when it comes to ascertaining the truth about the observable world, we can do experiments that are repeatable and observable. But when it comes to history, you can't repeat it. You can't observe it over again. And so you need to trust the testimony of others. I mean, who here believes that Captain Cook discovered Australia? From a Western sense. <laughs> yes. Now, why do you believe that? Well, because of the historical record. And this is how we can come to know the truthfulness of Jesus' claims. And this is why John wrote. He wrote, remember, to give us a testimony of what he had seen and what he had experienced. And so how can you be convinced? Well, why don't you walk with us over the next few months as we walk through the Gospel of John, and why don't you examine the veracity of his testimony? Who here has seen Judge Judy? All right. She's still going on television. It's amazing. She hasn't aged. She must use some pretty amazing face cream, I reckon. But Judge Judy, when she gets someone up on the stand, she interrogates them. And she asked questions of them to test the veracity of their testimony. And John would want you to do the same as you read the gospel. He wrote that with the exact purpose. For you to test what he's saying so that you would come to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. But there is another way, I think, that you can be convinced of the truthfulness of Jesus. And that is not only by looking at the testimony of scripture, but also by observing the uniqueness of his message. You see, not only is Christianity unique in that Jesus claimed to be God, but Christianity is absolutely unique in its message. Look down in verse 14 again. John says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then he says down in verse 16, and from his fullness, we have received grace upon grace. You see, Christianity is unique in whereas all other religions is man reaching up to God. Christianity is God reaching down to man. Last night, Tegan and I were watching this documentary called Sherpa on the Sherpas in Everest, and they are Buddhists, and you see them performing all of these sorts of rituals in order to appease the gods. Christianity isn't like that. It's not about what we do. It's, what, it's about what Jesus has done for us. And you notice he says, and we beheld his glory. Now, when he says that, I think he's referring to something in particular. You see, all the way throughout John's gospel, the most glorious moment will be the moment on the cross when the word who became flesh allowed that flesh to be crushed so that you and I might be reconciled to a holy God. You know, I said before that it is really hard to submit to the authority of another, isn't it? Who here finds that really difficult? But do you notice that Jesus is not just full of truth, he's full of grace and truth. And when you see how much he loves you, and how much you need him. I don't know about you, but I need Jesus. I need him in this moment. I need him this morning. 
Because I like to define right and wrong for myself and I like to live my own way and I like to serve myself. But Jesus died for all of that darkness on the cross so that we might be forgiven and healed and so that we might know him. You see, no one has ever seen God, but God, the only God, that's Jesus who is at the Father's side, has made him known. The cross was the biggest full stop ever in history with God saying, here is what I'm like. You can make up your own gods, but here's what I'm like. I'm a God who, yes, demands the truth, but I'm so gracious that I give my only son so that you didn't have to spend an eternity without me. This this is how amazing God is. Now, at the beginning, I read to you some sentences, and I didn't give you the subject, so let me now give you the subject, and let's see if you can make sense of these sentences again. The subject of these sentences that I read out at the beginning is a kite. Now, with that firmly fixed in your mind, let me read to you these paragraphs again. A newspaper is better than a magazine. A seashore is a better place than a street. At first, it's better to run than to walk. You have to try several times. It takes skill, but it's easy to learn. Once successful, complications are minimal. Even young children can enjoy it. Birds seldom get too close. Rain, however, soaks in very fast. Too many people doing the same thing can cause problems. You need lots of room. If there are no complications, it can be very peaceful. A rock will serve as an anchor, but if it breaks loose, you will not get a second chance. Does it make sense this time? Your life will not make sense unless you have the right subject. And John's point is that Jesus is the subject. And if you receive him, this amazing thing happens. By his light, you see everything else in your life. Everything else will start to make sense. Your suffering, your pain, your hurt, your difficulty, it will all start to make sense sense. Let's pray, eh?